we have James Mace with us. So James is the co-founder and CEO for Mind the Product. It's the world's largest product community with over 300,000 members and presence in over 200 cities. Uh, they hold meetings, trainings, conferences all over the world for uh, product managers, designers, developers, and and uh, it's it's been what eight years now, James. You uh, eleven in total, I think. Yeah, wow. we're coming up eleven years. Wow, wow, wow. So James would probably you know start off the conversation with knowing a little bit about yourself, your background, and and where exactly did this thought of starting something like a mind the product come come into your mind? Okay, so. Um, my background originally, I, I left university and went into um, technology recruiting. Uh, so I started out by building uh, high-tech teams for Capgemini, IBM, a couple of investment banks in London, um, organizations like that. And I, have a, I had a habit of choosing the most difficult roles to try and recruit for because that was the bit that was always most interesting. Um, so to give an example, the first one of my first ever projects was building a team of Java developers. Um, but this was in London. In 1996, it was the first Java development team in Europe. Java developers wow. did not exist outside of California. So that's that's the kind of route that I, I took through those years. Um, and I spent about 15 or so years in recruiting. Um, and it, it got to the point where, uh, you know, I needed a change and I wanted to work in startups for a while. So um, I built something called Tweet Jobs. Um, this would have been around 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. Um, and it was, an early, it was an early attempt at using Twitter for recruiting and playing in that space. 2005, became, is when probably uh, Twitter yeah. itself had not uh, evolved. Well, it was pretty small at the time, yeah. Um, yeah. So we were... We, we, yeah, was maybe, two, maybe 2008, somewhere around there. But I digress. Um, I think the... The interesting point that I realized over this experiment, I ran this for maybe 18 months or so. Um, and the thing that became most obviously apparent was that startups were exciting. There was definitely a thing that I wanted to do more of. And I became very aware of just how much I did not know. Um, and my, my, my initial attempt at a startup, this tweet jobs uh, approach, uh, fell apart. You know, we, we ran about 18 mm. months and then the whole thing collapsed. It was terrible. Um, so I, I, I sort of I, I viewed this as an opportunity to say, I've got 15 years of experience in recruiting. Somebody out there must be running a startup that's focused on building recruiting technology. So if I can go and work there, I can use my recruiting experience. I can help them in that respect, but I can also learn how to actually build a startup and do things properly. Mm. So I ended up um, going to another startup and working there for a while, um, a company called Brave New Talent, which was um, an interesting experiment and, and you know, a classic example of a startup raising some money and then doing an awful lot of things wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a fantastic learning experience with a really great mm -hmm. group of people, but certainly some mistakes were made. Um, but the, the, the most exciting thing that came out of that was that I ended up, um, I ended up as the head of commercial there where the head of product was a lady called Jana Basto. And Jana is another of the, the co-founders that mine the product. So the, the genesis of Mind the Product um, was around about 2010, uh, I think May 2010 in London. Uh, Jana, Simon Cast and Martin Erickson started bringing product managers together in a pub just to you know, drink a few beers and talk about product management. Now, 2010 in London, if you were a product manager at a company, you were the only product manager there. It was a very, very new role at the time. Uh, it wasn't like you could go to a company and they'd have 20 product managers floating around. You were the only one. You were very much on your own. And there wasn't much in the way of formal training or support for product people either. Um, literally, it was a kind of, you were the only person at the company doing that job. And if you had a question, if you had a problem, you would Google it. 
there was no formal training available, no conferences, no meetups, anything like that. So what Martin, Simon and Jana did was kick off something called Product Tank, basically mm -hmm. a think tank for product people. And they come together every month or so and maybe hear a different guest speaker talk about some of their experiences and then have a few beers and talk to one another. And mm. you know, one of the classic conversations that you would overhear would be somebody saying, I'm the only product manager at my firm. The CEO is insane and all of the engineers hate me. Mm. So this sort of monthly gathering almost became like therapy um, with these product managers coming together and sharing some war stories, but also sort of getting different opinions on how they might address their problems. Mm. So they ran this for probably a year or so, um, and it got to the point where it was growing. Um, you know, they were getting a couple of hundred people every month turning up now. And Jana and I were working together at one particular startup, and she said, you know, me, Simon and Martin have had this product meetup, and we're going to turn it into a conference. What do mm. you think? Mm. So uh, I had a look at it, and I said, you know, I think the, the community that you've built around this little meetup, a couple of hundred people, is really interesting. And, mm. and I think... I think we could turn this conference into something really special. Let me have a look. Mm. Let me take a look at the business plan. Let me take a look at the numbers. Mm. So I ended up getting involved in it from a commercial point of view because mm. I said, the way that you're building it, I think you can do better commercially. I think you can mm. work with companies um, and have them offer you more in the way of financial support. So that was my initial involvement. Uh, Martin, Simon and Jana founded the thing. Um, and then I came in essentially as the fourth co-founder, um, mm. but particularly to look at the commercial side of this and look at their relationship mm. with clients. And then we ran the first conference in 2012 in London for about 450 people. Um, I know there's a lot of people that uh, that, that, that live in, in, in Slack and Builders Club and Discord and things like that who focus on NPS as being a, a core metric for customer satisfaction. Mm. Now, at that point in time, uh, if you were using NPS to measure how well you did, your, 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 your gold standard, your target was Apple. Everybody wanted the same level of happiness in their customers that Apple generated. And they were scoring something like 67 NPS Net Promoter School. Mm. Um, so we made, we, we, we ran this first conference and the NPS on the back of that was something like 73, 74. Wow. Um, it was one of the best customer happiness surveys that we'd ever experienced. So on the back of that, we said, okay, we're, we're going to do this conference again. We've got to keep going with this. Mm. We grew the one in London a little bit. Uh, that gradually grew every year. We kept running it every autumn and it would get a little bit bigger. Um, but likewise, the meetups also started to spread, these product tank meetups. So the original one was just in London. Mm. Um, and then somebody said, you know, I'm, I'm going to move from London over to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. I'm really going to miss mm. product tank. Mm. So we said, fantastic. Why don't you start one in Amsterdam? Become the first international product tank. Um, and that continued to expand. So we're now at the point where those meetups are in, I think, 200 cities, something like that. Yeah. Um, and if you look at uh, India, for example, there's probably a half a dozen different Indian cities that do have product tanks operating now. Wow, really? Um, and that, yeah, uh, we certainly have Bangalore, uh, Mumbai, Delhi, Hyderabad. Uh, if you hit producttank.com, you'll find them. Mm. Uh, but our, in, our India community of product managers is probably in the region of 30,000 now. Wow. 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 So it's, been a, it's been a hell of a journey. Um, it does it definitely continues to expand the conferences along yeah so i guess thank you is is uh, the yeah so i guess this this is a community purely made to solve the problems or to help the product managers developers and basically the techies if i may say so if i may use that word sure. yeah. yeah i mean it's, yeah. essentially we started out with a focus on product managers because mm. martin simon and jana were product managers and they wanted mm. to you know they wanted to get better at their craft 
and they wanted to meet other product managers. I, I, I think uh, what, what started to happen was that we started to see people coming along who weren't just pure product managers. We also started to see UX leads and design leads and engineering leads. Mm. And they started to come along because they wanted to understand product management better. How could they collaborate better? How could they communicate mm. better? How could they work more closely? Mm. Um, but the thing is, you know, continue to expand from there. And the global community is now 300,000, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 2019, before the... Before the pandemic landed, we expanded the conferences. So the conferences now exist in London, San Francisco, Germany, uh, Singapore. We actually did an online conference for Singapore earlier this week. Um, and wow. had about 400 product managers along for that. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and then the pandemic hit. and obviously, yeah. So you, you people were more mostly offline before the pandemic hit, if I understand correctly. And then you transitioned to the online bit. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. So with the, the, uh, the meetups and the conferences, they were all offline. They were all real world events. Um, and what we do is we get the video from those events and we post those online. Yeah. So we had them on the product site, but it was mostly content from the meetups and from the conferences. Mm. And then the pandemic hit. So we had to say, how do we change? What do we do online? Mm. So we invested heavily in the website, started to build a membership model with premium subscription and self-serve online training and workshops and various other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're now in the position where that the, the training customers that we have are mm. they range from startups of 10 50 people through mm. to some of the world's leading bank operations in new york and london um mm. likewise we've worked with major streaming music and media companies um mm. now the, the kind of companies that you'd know the name of but we're not allowed to mention for contractual reasons <laughs> no, i get it i get it i get it so what's the what's the problem so i wanted to understand the core philosophy of mind the product what's the problem that you're solving for the product managers and also on the other side for the corporates as well i think from the from the product managers themselves uh, the problem quite simply is that there is no right way to do product management and there's a lack of clear structured training and advice available to people so Mm. we take the approach that what we want to do is we want to gather the best stories in product management from around the world and share those make those available mm-hmm. and promote them. Some of them are stories from the US, we get stories from Singapore, we get stories from India, from Australia, and we want to share those stories. And then you as a product person or as a product builder can look at it and say, I can see where this person ran into trouble and I can see how they recovered from that and I can use that to help me in the challenges that I now have. So essentially yeah. we bring product people together and by sharing those stories, we help them to improve at their craft. Yeah. Um, in terms of the individual companies, uh, the actual companies that we work with, um, there's a number of different reasons why they work with us. Some of it is around formal training and actually helping their product managers to improve at their craft. And some of it is um, you know, around actually hiring product managers and saying, you know, for example, a major bank will come to us on a regular basis and say, we need to hire another 10 product managers this year. You have a community of 300,000. We'd like to work with you in order to find the best ones and hire them, please. So we work with companies mm-hmm. like that. So is this, is the whole tonality of the community fairly formal or is it informal? How exactly have you maintained that balance that the people are serious about what they're doing here as well as, you know, have fun at the meantime? It, yeah, I mean, essentially it's, it's serious work that we're talking about. It is very much, um, it, is the, it is the business of building technology, the business mm. of building websites and apps mm. and products. Uh, mm. So there's a serious nature to the conversation. But we also mm. try to make sure that it has that level of informality to it. So everybody's nice mm. and approachable. There's a lot of backward and forward conversation. Mm. You know, it's you have to remember that when this first started, it started because a bunch of people got together in a pub over yeah. a few beers and had a yeah. chat. 
Yeah. And that's that, that that aspect of the community still remains at the heart of this. Mm. Product managers want to talk to other product managers and say, where did it go wrong? Why did it catch fire? What mm. did you learn from that? And all we do is we facilitate those conversations. We help people to find the conversations that they can learn from. Mm. So it has to be approachable. There has to be this conversational nature maintained throughout. Mm. The other thing that we do is, is we work very, very hard to make sure that it remains authentic, uh, mm. that, that it may, remains credible. Um, we've got a lot of vendors, software companies who will quite happily say, can we, run, can we run a webinar? Can we talk at the conference? And you can look mm. at them and you can say, we know that you want to get on this stage just so that you can sell your product. Mm. That's not what we're here for. We are here mm. to tell the story of how you built that product, why you built that product, and what went wrong mm. along the way. Because mm. that's the sort of story that people can learn from. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I would love to probably deep dive into, you know, what exactly, I mean, how exactly is the whole community structured? As in, was who's the team who's leading it? And as in, you know, mm -hmm. you, you have presence across 200 cities now. So how's the yeah. whole team structure like? How How's the whole globalization or decentralization uh, aspect in the team structure? Uh, managed as well as you know how do you ensure that the quality is maintained throughout sure so on the first topic in terms of how the team is structured we have about 15 people uh, that work for mine the product in london and these are people who work on um, executing the conferences these are people who work on the websites work on the content work on the marketing mm. um, in terms of the actual cities around the world they're always local volunteers and they're always actual product managers and typically it's a couple of them per city. So somebody will come to us and say, hi, I'd like to start a product tank in Delhi, please. Mm. Okay, excellent. Are you a product manager? Do you understand the nature of product? We want people who actually work in this role and understand what it is. Mm. Um, and then what we look to do is we look to pair them with somebody else in that city. Mm. So as you know, running a community can be pretty time consuming, right? Yeah, so yeah. we make sure that every city has a couple of people and that way they can lean on one another. They have that support. Um, now, in terms of what's in it for us, they run the local meetup. They take care of the logistics. They know the local city. So they're likely to know who some of the better speakers are. They're likely to know which venues are going to host them. They're likely to know which industries are most important in that city. So some cities may be heavily into financial technology. Other cities might be heavily into government technology. So we need somebody who understands the local nature of that. Mm. Um, and then in terms of what they get back from us, they give us maybe eight hours a month of their time to run that local meetup mm. um, and in, in return from us uh, they get to say you know they're associated with mind the product they work with us we help them become the best connected product manager in their city which is obviously very very good for their career prospects it's going to help them find fantastic jobs in future um, but likewise we make sure that they get free access to our membership program free access to the self-service training mm. a free conference ticket every year so they really do get to learn an awful lot and, and really build their professional network and become a recognized expert in the field Nice, nice, nice. And how do you go about in maintaining the quality? Because 200 cities, how do you, is the, are there regular review meetups? Are there certain matrices which you track? How do you take care of that? So we have a community manager here in London, um, Will Barrett, whose job is uh, essentially to support all of those people in the, little, in the different cities. Uh, he provides them with a monthly uh, newsletter of tips and advice and things that can help their community thrive. He helps to facilitate connections to different and interesting speakers to make sure that they've got new ideas coming through and new opportunities. And he also then keeps an eye on which meetups are growing, how regularly they're running, whether they're stagnating. He'll also take a look at the video streams 
um, and make sure that the quality of the video streams and the quality of the speakers is where it should be. Um, and essentially, it's about saying if we can spot a problem with one city and maybe it hasn't run a meetup for the last three months. Will can reach out and say, hey, I noticed you haven't had anything for the last couple of months. What happened? How can we support mm. you? What do you need from us? So we provide that level of ongoing support and monitoring. Um, and then likewise, as I say, a lot, of the, a lot of the cities, when they're running these meetups, they'll take the video and they'll live stream that to YouTube. So we can see the video right there. We can watch that from London and keep an eye on what's going on and make sure that everything's up to scratch. So one of the very interesting aspects of your community is the conversation. So wanted to, I guess you also have a Slack community uh, and it's one of the, you know, one of the biggest ones uh, that we have in, in the product <laughs> ecosystem, frankly. It's about uh, 45,000 people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> So what's what's the what's the thought? When did you people start? I mean, I wanted to I want to understand the evolution through platforms because you people started at a pub, then you got into events, then you started yeah. doing events in different cities, then an online platform came. How did that whole structure, that whole journey, uh, come come about? So the the original thing was obviously the little meetup in London, um, and the next thing was realizing that that meetup was generating content, and we wanted mm. to share that content. Cool, mm. let's build a WordPress site and we can start sharing it on the WordPress site. Mm. And then we realized that people wanted to talk to each other in between the meetups. So the meetup was only once a month, but maybe you had a problem one week and you're mm. like, I'd love to be able to share this problem with five other product managers and get some advice. So mm. we actually started a Skype chat. Oh. Um, and the forerunner was this Skype chat. We had about 100 product managers in there back in 2011, 2012. Wow. Um, so there's a, a, a constant Skype chat room, and you could drop in there and ask 100 product managers a question and say, hey, I'm struggling with this experiment. Does anybody have advice? Mm. And then over the years, obviously, Slack was released and started to gain popularity. And a lot of our audience work for startups in one way or another. Pretty much every mm. startup I come across now is using Slack. So mm. we started polling the community and asking them, say, you know, this Skype chat room, is this still the right place to be or should we move? And literally everybody said, please move to Slack. You all have mm. to work on Slack, so you might as well put mine the product there too. Mm. Okay, cool. So we did that. Um, the Slack community, as I say, it's about 45,000 now. Um, it's getting a little bit unwieldy, to be honest, because Slack isn't really built for community. It's built for corporates. Mm -hmm. So the next thing for us is looking at the website and saying, is there something that we should be building into the website to recreate some of this discussion um, mm. functionality? rebuild some of that um, and actually build that within a website where we can actually build better tools to moderate the community and to manage the community and to give them what they really need. So our website itself um, is undergoing constant iteration and change. Um, and most of that is driven by you know, what we see the community needs. And these meetups and the conferences provide us with a constant opportunity to talk to the community and say, you can see what we've done for the last 10 years, but you're the people who know what problems you have day to day. How can mm. we help you? What do you need from us? So we're constantly to get that feedback and figure out what we can do next james one thing which i wanted to touch upon is around the whole monetization aspect now people there are communities yeah. which people you know build but they once they reach a sizable about some size uh, a sizable amount of members uh, they have difficulty into transition into monetization one who wanted to understand how how did the you know how does the monetization bit in in the mind the product work as in do the are there programs in which the product managers also pay or is it only from corporates and in general 
uh, you know, from a community aspect, you know, what kind of revenue models in, you know, as you scale up. And of course, you know, some, some channels might be applicable at one aspect of the journey of the community, you know, at one phase of the community, uh, of the community growth. And the others might be applicable on the other phases. So just wanted to get your thoughts around that, Brett. Sure. So, as I said, we, we started with the free meetup in London um, and that, that became a core part of it for us. Uh, those meetups, those product tank meetups are still free right around the world. They remain free and we want them to always be free. Essentially, that's our that's our not for profit community arm. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, the content that comes from those, uh, that's essentially people in the community volunteering and saying, hey, I'm, I'm happy to get up on stage and do a talk about this thing that I just built and how it went mm-hmm. wrong cool that's free content so if we get that content for free we shouldn't be charging anybody else to access it you can attend a product tank for free whenever you want and any content that we get from product tank that we put on the website that will also remain freely available forever mm. so we get three hundred thousand uniques a month on the website and most of those are people looking for product content and accessing it for free and uh, that's mm. fine by us uh what we did was when we started the conferences in 2012 we were in a situation there where a number of the speakers that we had in London, we had to fly over from San Francisco. Mm. Uh, so for that, uh, specifically, we we said, you know, if we've got to pay to fly people over and pay to put them in hotels and pay them speaker fees, then the people attending the conference need to buy tickets. You have to pay for that. Um, mm. And it basically created this model where we say, if it's free content that comes to as it comes to us, we'll make it available for free. But if we have to pay for the content, then you're going to have to pay to access it. Now, some people get their communities to play and some people uh, will quite happily uh, pay for it themselves. Um, and then over the last couple of years, obviously, we've, we've had to move um, through this route of moving so much more um, online. So we've taken the same line to the website. If you look at the website now, there is a, uh, there's a paywall on the website. Mm-hmm. And any content that comes to us for free, guest contribution from the community or videos from the product tank, that's all still free. But if you want to look at the videos from the conferences where we paid keynote speaker fees, then you're going to pay a membership fee to access that content. Mm. So if you look at the uh, the website, um, I'll pop a link in actually for in, in a second. Yeah, you you've see, already linked uh, it there, the difference between. So the I've, yeah. I've just dropped two posts in the chat uh, in the water cooler chat. Um, one of them is how to access the Slack community. Um, somebody asked for that, mm. and then I've added one in around the membership so you can see the difference between the free and the paid version. Um, but essentially what you'll see is you know, if we can if we can produce that content for free, then we're not mm. going to charge people to access it. Um, mm. We don't believe that we should be charging you for something that we got for free. That's just mm. wrong. You know? mm. the, the, the heart of the community was always helping people level up and improve. And if we can continue to do that for free, then fantastic. But as mm. I say, if there's, you know, the, we still have to pay for some aspects of it. So if we pay to build it, somebody else has to pay to see it. Agreed. 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 No, that's that's exactly uh, the thought process that we also follow, and 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 I'm glad that you know major a lot of points that you you pointed out. At least I hope that you know we are also doing something right because a lot of things you know are very similar to how we are approaching the community. Uh, one thing which I wanted to touch upon is around uh, the scalability aspect. So you know, uh, you know the, the topic of our discussion was uh, you know helping people understand how to build global sustainable communities so mm-hmm. you know one the terms that i used is global and sustainable uh, fairly difficult fairly difficult to to actually <laughs> to do and and you folks have done it on an offline medium so number one hats off to you 
Uh, number two, wanted to understand that once you started, once you started the journey of you know expanding to different cities, different geographies, what kind of problems did you people come across? Were there were there any differences in user behavior, or was it basically macro level remains the same, but there were there were local flavors to the same behavior? I mean, how what what are the different challenges that you faced along the journey, and how did the user behavior change across geographies? Oh, that's a good one. There are so many differences around the world. It's yeah. uh, that, that that has been an absolutely relentless ten year headache frankly mm. um <laughs> some of it is kind of that macro city level cultural difference um so a perfect example of this we ran the meetups in london for many years mm. and all meetups in london happen in the evening um and everybody in london gets to work by tube or by bus mm. so when somebody's going to a meetup in london they finish work and they travel around the corner to the meetup and the first thing they expect is a free beer they want to turn up, they want to have a cold beer, they want to relax for the evening and then join the conversation. Mm. Cool. Okay. That's the expectation. We can have a sponsor mm. for the evening and we can provide a bunch of beers. That's easy. Mm. Mm. But then we started taking the product tanks around the rest of the world. And the first time we ran one in San Francisco, I was there. Mm. And we had a host uh, for the evening. Uh, one of the analytics companies had agreed to host us for the evening and gave us an event space and laid on a load of free beers. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Mm. Uh, the first five people through the door all said... I'm not interested in a beer. Have you got any smoothies? Mm. Turns out everybody in San Francisco drives to work and they're incredibly health conscious. So they weren't interested in a free beer, but they did want a fruit smoothie. Mm. So it was just a little difference like that when we first mm. ran the meetup that you start to realize, okay, there are some serious differences here. Mm. We found places in uh, Southeast Asia, particularly, where people actually don't like a meetup straight after work. They like to finish work, go home see the kids, grab dinner, maybe have a shower, freshen up, and then come back out later in the evening for the meetup when it's cooler. Mm. So they have to run at a slightly different time. Mm. Um, as we started to scale it and put things uh, and, and put paid events around the world, so the London conference, excellent, not a problem. We're a UK-registered company. We understand exactly how to run the tax for an event in London. Mm. Turns out when you start moving around to other countries, they handle event tax very, very differently. Oh. And we had to do an awful lot of learning in terms of figuring out exactly how we handled that. And there's differences in terms of whether it's a, a sponsorship invoice or whether it's a tickets invoice or you know, even even before Brexit, when the UK was still officially part of Europe, there were even tax differences in different countries around Europe. So just being registered for tax in the UK wasn't good enough. If we wanted to run workshops in Amsterdam, we had to register for tax in Amsterdam and we wanted to run workshops in Spain. OK, well, let's register for tax in Spain. And you start to realize that every time you register for tax in a new country, you also then need the accountants to go with it and the yeah. bookkeepers to go with yeah. it. Yeah. And you get this cost of scaling that becomes absolutely yeah. brutal. Yeah. So one of the things that the pandemic actually did, which went in our favor, is we took all those workshops online. And when you put those workshops online, you can then use online yeah. service providers to handle the payments. Yeah. So we ended up working with a company called Paddle, UK-based. And Paddle's particular speciality is being the merchant of record in any country around the world. So we remain oh, wow. out of London. We pay our taxes in London. But if you happen to be in India and you buy a membership in India, it's Paddle that will handle that transaction for us. They are the Indian merchant of record. They are compliant with all of the Indian legislation. They'll pay the relevant amount of tax in India and then just remit the revenue back to us when all of the paperwork and all of the detail is taken care of. So they've made it much, much easier for us to scale that digital footprint right around the world. Right, right, right. So one 
one thing which you touched upon is the uh, the online aspect and i really want to know uh, the whole transition journey of yours you know the whole pandemic effect which came in and how exactly did you people lead with it because i guess you're the ones who turned a problem into an opportunity and i guess a lot of people right. who were in the events game was like you know the whole events ecosystem is finished you know now for the next one year nothing's going to happen but people have moved virtually so number one wanted to understand that that journey and number two also want to understand you know how exactly you know the pros and cons of online uh, versus offline or whatever you want to call it sure um i mean i think the the first thing that actually really helped us happened before the pandemic made the news so in 2019 we got together as a company for a few days at an offsite um it's worth saying we're a we're a distributed team we're a fully yeah. remote team so whilst we're all in the uk we all work, we all work from home and we always have done for the last 10 years so the the, the idea of not being able to go to an office 5 days a week again yeah. didn't actually cause us as much disruption as it did for some other companies but when the pandemic landed you know 2019 we we were starting to have this conversation about the fact that everybody knew us as an events company because the conferences was where our revenue actually came from but the truth of it if you really look at the detail we're a media and publishing business it was just that we happened to make most of our revenue from events mm. so when a pandemic lands and you can no longer run events that doesn't mean you can no longer be a media and publishing business it just means you need to find another way to monetize your media and publishing. Mm. So with that in mind we started looking at uh examples of the New York Post and the Financial Times and say these are organizations that produce in- incredibly high quality content mm. they do so for a niche audience and they make most of their money online. What do they do? And fundamentally you come up with the answer of they have a subscriber program or a membership program and some of their stuff goes behind a paywall that people pay to access. Mm. Okay, well that seems to make sense that's a thing we can do right so the question then became how do we do this with good product management thinking how fast can we move what things should we test because mm. uh, you know we, we looked at the ft for example the financial times and i think i remember reading one story that said it took them something like 18 months and 40 developers to actually wow. build their membership program and the subscription paywall and all of those things and we looked at it and we said well we've only got one developer and we've got about 4 months until we're out of business So 18 months and 40 developers is not an option that we have. We need to move faster than that. Mm. So the first thing very quickly was um, you know and it was a program predominantly led by uh, Martin Erickson, uh, one of our original founders. Mm. Um Martin looked at it and said okay, the first thing we need to test um good product management thinking, will somebody pay us for this? Mm. Okay? Well, we can build a very very light version of this very quickly with some WordPress plugins. and we can tag some of this content as being behind the paywall we can put a credit card engine on there and we want to say you know um can peter turn up and pay 10 pound a month with his credit card in order to get access to this thing and the idea was simply to prove whether or not we had audience members who would pay for access because if yeah. we could put that live but nobody paid for access there was no point in building anymore exactly that's the thing that exactly. we needed to test we tested that incredibly rapidly uh the first version of that as I said predominantly built by one developer um and that was live and available and taking payments after about 3 months I want to say about 3 3 and a half months they took mm-hmm. to get that launched um mm-hmm. and then from there we've continued to look at it very very carefully and we look at who's paying for it which sites they're using which posts they're reading what sort of advice they're looking for and then obviously having constant user feedback conversations with them to say you're now part of the membership program 
what works for you what doesn't work mm. for you what 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 other value can we add things like that mm. so the membership program now as you if you uh, look at the uh, the page that i dropped into the chat earlier mm. you'll see there's a number of different things that are in there and initially our first cut was to say we think these are the things that are important let's put those in there and then from there you continue to test now one of our original assumptions was to say if we're going to have a membership program one of the things that will be most important will be that that membership gets you access to discounted conference tickets mm. that was our assumption but we then went and tested that with people in the audience and say you know these are the 10 things that we plan to include in membership mm. can you stack rank us can you stack mm. rank and tell us which of these things are most important and we thought ticket discounts for the conference would be absolutely at the top of the thing that people wanted it wasn't it was right down at the bottom Nobody cared about that at all. Mm. What they did care about was to say, what can you do in the way of online training? What can you do in terms of oh. new content? Can you do AMA sessions with other experts that we couldn't otherwise get? Those were the sort of things that people actually wanted. So then we started building out a lot more of that, started changing what was going into the different membership packages to make sure that we got that right. Mm. And then we ran that for a few months. It's like, okay, we've got individuals that are turning up and buying membership and getting involved and getting value from this. This is fantastic. But this would work better if we could take it to companies. So instead of saying, I'm going to sell a seat today and a seat tomorrow and another seat on Thursday and another seat on Friday, what if we could go to a company and they bought 40 seats? That would change the game, right? That would give us much more sustainability. That would give us much more predictable revenue. So that's what we've been doing over the last three or four months. And we can now say, yep, that journey is going really well as well. And we've had a number of banks that have turned around to us and they've said, nice. we'd like to buy a license for 60 seats, 120 seats. And they're saying, you know, we've got 40 product managers. We've also got 40 lead designers. We'd like 80 seats, please, because we want the lead designers to be able to access this content as well so oh. they can work better with the product people. So, so you basically transitioned completely from an events company to a media production. High quality media content. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll continue to run the online conferences for the time being. Um, and then as soon as we feel it's safe to do so, we'll go back to running uh, major conferences in real life, uh, the offline events. The event calendar for us, we usually do the two biggest events that we do each year. We usually do San Francisco in July uh, for about 1,700 people um, and then London in October, uh, again, for about 1,700 people. My bet at the moment is that we, we will stay digital for the July event because I don't think the US is going to be opened up enough um, and safe enough to be ready for that kind of event. So we'll do digital for July for the US audience. Uh, but then hopefully by the time we get to October, uh, we can go back to doing an in-person event in real life and bring 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 product managers together in London for a, a sort of two-day uh, product management extravaganza. Best of luck for this, uh, for these events, which are which are planned for the future. It's been It's been an amazing, amazing half an hour of discussion. And I've got so much to learn already. And I have a few other questions as well, but uh, I want to now open up the floor for the audience to ask their questions. Uh, we'll just pick a few. Long Beach, if you can unmute and ask a question. Hi, I'm Mukul. Uh, Hi, I'm Mukul. a capital designer. So I wanted to ask. Uh, I wanted to ask you this question: uh, How to hire good people? I think fundamentally, it's the uh, the, the the key part here is understanding not just what you want them to do immediately, but what you want them to do as your company grows. I see a lot of companies that will say, we're looking to hire somebody who can solve this problem for us right now. And when you hire in that fashion, what you get is somebody who can solve problems for you today, tomorrow, maybe next week. 
but your company's going to change incredibly quickly as a startup. And the challenges that you have this week will be different to the challenges that you have next week, different to the challenges that you have the week after. So my thoughts on finding people for startups are essentially finding people who've got the right sort of attitude to move quickly between the different challenges that get thrown at them. If the last year has taught us anything at all, it has taught us that the world remains incredibly unpredictable mm. and startups even more so. So what I'm looking for typically is somebody who they maybe have some core competencies as an engineer. They're fantastic PHP developers or Python developers or whatever. But what's almost more important to me is if I got you working on this next this week, but next week I ask you to change and go and work on that. How are you mm. going to react? Yeah. I want to see people that are going to be able to move quickly and say, I've got skills I can transfer to that problem. I might need to learn some new stuff, but I know how I can learn that. I know the right questions to ask. I know where I can go find that information. And I'm absolutely happy to take on that new challenge too. When you're hiring in startups, it's that adaptability that I think is more important than anything. If you get somebody who says, I can do this, and this is the only thing I want to do, they're going to become useless to you pretty quickly. I agree. I agree. And I guess, you know, especially uh, here, the the clarity of thought of the founders also comes uh, comes into play. Because at the end of the day, they are the ones who are dictating the terms uh, of the JD. It doesn't, it doesn't. I think the key thing here is that the founders often have this long-term vision of what they're going to create. Mm-hmm. But I think one of, the, one of the things that I see most often with founders where they struggle is when they say, we're a couple of months into doing this now. We're starting to learn some things. Our initial assumptions were wrong, and we need to be open to change. And I think the, the, one, of the, one of the most fundamental problems that we see is where founders start building something, they start mm-hmm. running some experiments, they start launching some software, the market doesn't react in quite the way that they expected, but they keep driving ahead nonetheless and continuing to do the same thing and hoping that it works. Mm-hmm. Whereas what they actually need to do is to say, why, are you, why, is, it, why is this not working in the way that we expect? What mm-hmm. is it that our users want that is different? How are they using this in a way that we didn't anticipate? Things like that. Um, Mm. And then actually listening to that feedback and using that to build a better product. One of the best examples I've seen of this uh, was actually Twitter in the early days. Um, You know, you have the functionality on Twitter to just hit that little button and retweet something. That's something they built because they watched their users. That wasn't the idea of retweeting wasn't originally in Twitter at all. But what they noticed were users were picking up a tweet that they liked, typing RT, and then co- copying the original tweet into it and sharing it again. It's like, that's not what we expected, but our users are doing that. They seem to find some value in that. So let's build some functionality for that. And the retweet button was born. But it's a perfect example of building something into the platform because you've listened to your users, you've seen what they're doing, and you're saying, that's a thing that our users value. So let's make that easier. Wow. Wow. We we would love to have uh, a a different uh, you know session just for used cases with us. It's 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 a very interesting <laughs> use case. Yeah, good good good. Uh, long uh, is your is your question answered, Long Beach? Yes yes yes. Cool. I think we can move on to the next question. Harsh Harsh, yeah. you can ask a question. Right. Uh, my name might sound an oxymoron to you <laughs> because. <laughs> It resembles harsh in English, but anyways, uh, so my question is, what's your thought on real-world challenges to product managers, like changing market dynamics and impacting project management, uh, varying opinions about the directions to take in product development? I think this is one of those that really separates um, good PMs from great PMs. 
changing changing market dynamics particularly is one of those things that can be a massive challenge that can utterly kill a company and you can look at the pandemic of the last year and you can say look at all of the event companies that no longer exist you can also say that market challenge that that changing market dynamic gave us the opportunity to say what can we do in the online world so when this pandemic backs off we'll then be in a position where we can return to running our conference business and we'll have a thriving online business as well and essentially that was simply a massively changing market dynamic for an 18 month two year period and because we are we are rich with excellent product managers um, as you might expect here at mind the product um we were able to take that opportunity and do something really incredible with it but we were able to do that because we have great pms who said what what are all the opportunities that this presents what could we do what are all the different things i mean um i think the the person to go take a look at on this would be uh, a lady called teresa torres Mm-hmm. she runs a site called product talk uh, i think it's producttalk.org um and she talks an awful lot about product discovery um and what she uh, particularly continuous discovery so this idea that you don't just do user research once and then it's finished user research is constantly ongoing mm-hmm. the world that your users live in is constantly changing the problems that they are trying to solve or the reasons that they're using your service are constantly changing so your product discovery is never done It's like you know your coding is never done your security is never done your discovery is never done um and changing dynamic changing market dynamics are always there it's not a thing that needs to be called out specially it's the only constant is change hmm. right so the thing for me that differentiates a really great product manager is somebody who is actually aware of that and is making sure that they are constantly making room for that discovery and saying what's changed since we last looked at this customer what's changed since we last looked at this use case what can we learn that's new what opportunity does this give us um but like i say if you want further reading on that teresa torres is the lady that i would recommend um i'll find her website now and drop it in the chat for you yeah sure awesome awesome thanks a lot rationalist the rationalist are you still there yeah you can go next yeah okay hi uh, thanks sir uh, hi james uh, hi a uh, quick one but uh, significant uh, how do you exactly define the product management per se i mean how would you distinguish uh, this to somebody who is like a tech champion who is like you know a technology greek but still there is a different necessity in a form of uh, tech versus business oriented is one and you mentioned that uh, you have been supporting quite a few banks in hiring but yeah. as far as i understand because i come from the banking background that uh, there is a highly regulated uh, job profile linked to the product management uh, especially the european banks and all are very particular about this for the last 5 6 years yeah. so i obviously believe this has got nothing to do i mean though the names are same but that product management is completely different there it is that is about customer uh, like to control the miss selling and that's a purely product management from a banking financial product control point of view absolutely they they're, they're very very different uh the focus that we have is predominantly on digital/technology uh product managers um and where we where we find they exist um especially within banks um is over the last few years we've seen an awful lot of challenger banks of startup banks um coming out who you know, instead of having a, a website or a branch um the 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 access to your account is done on your mobile device um and this is an area where the old banks um you know the, the banks that have been around in the UK and the US for 100 200 years 
have found that they're losing ground rapidly to startups um, and that the startups are picking up these new customers incredibly quickly. So now our, our history with that um, is actually one of the one of the UK's leading banks who are 200 years old. Um, they came to us a couple of years back and they said, uh, we're really, really struggling with the new challenger banks, these new startup banks. They're moving incredibly fast. They're launching products effect incredibly quickly and they're stealing all of our customers. How do we compete with them? We've looked at it and we've come to the conclusion that the big, uh, the big established banks have product managers who look after mortgage products or insurance products, but they don't have product managers who look after technology products, whereas startups have product managers who look after technology products. And this bank realized that that was the major difference. That was where they needed to change. So they, they, they wanted to work with us specifically to say, how do we hire digital um, product managers? We know about financial product managers. That's different. That's a completely different context. Um, so yeah, we focus purely on the on the technology and the digital side. Um, but I would also say that um, working within the world of digital product in banking is again a very specialist area because of the level of regulation. Um, you know, with a lot of the startups that we work with, they have no customer base, no brand, no risk associated, and no regulatory framework that they have to operate within. Whereas with banks, you might have 200 years history, 20 million customers, an awful lot of financial risk attached, and a regulator that's looking over your shoulder 24 seven. So the role of a, of a technology product manager in banking is very, very different anyway. Okay, uh, thanks for uh, that answer. Uh, just a concluding comment, um, if you can kindly distinguish between the product management and the project management itself, because I've also seen some of the banks, uh, maybe in the wrong way, but they approach a lot of their digital initiatives in a classical PMO stuff. Yeah. So how, how do we distinguish between the two? I've got a I've got a generalization that I tend to use for this and it's not it's not perfect there are opportunities to pick this one apart but what I would typically say is that um, product management is about building the right thing whereas project management is about building the thing right so with your product manager you're doing the discovery you're trying to find out what problem your customers are looking to solve you're trying to find out how to improve their lives how to deliver better services how to make things more efficient once you've actually done all that research and discovery and you've run some experiments and you've tested your assumptions and you can say, yes, this is definitely the route that we need to go down. Then you start working with a project manager whose job is actually to build that thing right. It's their job to run the delivery side of it. As a product manager, you then stay attached and say, I want to make sure that I'm seeing the insights from the customers. When we launch this, how are they using it? Where are they struggling? What's the churn like? What are the analytics showing us? How can we improve the product? But again, all of that work is about building the right things. That's the job of product management is to make sure that you are building the right things. Okay. Uh, thank you once again. So uh, can we say that in spite of all these great product managers, the project management will still survive? Project managers are not going to lose their job soon. Oh, correct. Absolutely. They should, they should be working effectively together. That's, that's where you'll really win. Thank you. Cheers. My pleasure. Your thoughts on communities which are starting purely online uh, the whole uh, you know dynamics between the users is fairly different when you meet in a pub versus you meet on an online chat room uh, and you know we we ourselves have started our, our community on discord and we are fairly lucky in that sense that this has a voice chat option but usually you yeah. know since you you have you have you have kind of grown the community on slack it just has text and want to understand your thoughts around you know had you been starting mind the product right now in 2021 
how would you have gone about it you know if you start from scratch right now how would the whole thought process be like and how would it be different from the way you started then i mean if we were to if we were to start the whole thing again from scratch right now um we would be still living in a pandemic so we yeah. would have to be online um and we would find we would find a way to make that work so mm. yeah to, to a certain extent uh, you you deal with whatever circumstances or whatever market conditions you have at the time i think mm. the the most fundamental the most important part of it um is as with every other aspect of product management it's to say do the research to understand your customers you know this the community members here are essentially your customers right they are the customers yeah. of builders club they are, yeah. they are essentially spending their time with you and we all know that time is money so if people yeah. are choosing to spend their time with you they're looking to get some value back for that time yeah. if you are focused on what that value is and you can continually deliver that value and deliver it with respect and with credibility and with authenticity then i don't think it actually makes that much difference whether you're online or offline it's possible mm-hmm. in both i think the key thing is to make sure that you actually understand what your customers value and then deliver it mm mm-hmm. no no i agree i absolutely agree but what about the uh, the dynamics with the users isn't it different online versus offline yeah especially the interpersonal communication between the users it is different um but fundamentally the problems they're trying to solve remain the same they're trying to learn they're trying to learn from one another they're trying to connect with people that can help them um uh, humans like to be together you know it's it's human nature to connect with other people to learn from other people and to share stories mm. we've been telling stories since the days that we lived in caves and sat around fires in the evening the dynamics of the conversation might change it might be easier to have some of those uh in real life it might be easier to have some of them online yeah. but fundamentally the core components are still the same it's still yeah. about human connection storytelling sharing yeah 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 valid if, point if, if people can't do that they'll go online valid point valid point cool uh i think we can take just one more question and then we can close uh, anybody has any questions shrini are try, trying to type something if you can if you want to ask you can directly ask uh, i can i can see the question right uh, here yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Short answer is, you know, we we that there are a vast amount of different frameworks and templates and canvases and processes um, that people can use in product management, and they all have their place. Uh, you know, there, there's different times and places to use all of them. Uh, the firm thing that we believe in Mind the Product is that the one that you choose to use needs to be dictated by the circumstances that you're in. So, for example, um, you might choose one framework or one process when you have ten developers. and no customers mm. but then 2 years later you suddenly find that you've got a couple of million customers and a team of 250 developers mm. so the templates and the models and the frameworks that you need to use will change mm. um i'm certainly in a position where i'd use the value proposition canvas um, i'm working through something for a new idea at the moment where i'm actually working with the uh, the business model canvas um the other one that i like from time to time is the lean canvas uh, the lean ux canvas oh nice and i think it's simply a case of picking the right one at the right time Um I would never say to anybody there is only one way to do product management. There's a bunch of different ways. But like I say, sometimes you've got 10 developers, sometimes you've got 200. Sometimes you've got no customers, sometimes you've got 20 million. Mm. Sometimes you're creating a completely new category of business and other times you're in a regulated environment. Mm-hmm. So the framework that you choose, the templates that you use or the canvas that you might work with, they're going to change depending on what it is you're focused on. and i think fundamentally the most important thing is actually to be open to that mm. and to say i might have a favorite but that favorite might not be the right one this time what are the others how do i evaluate them and how do i choose the best one 
again, that's the kind of thinking that sets aside a really great product manager. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I guess uh, we have reached the end of the water cooler conversation. I'll just ask you for one last question and then probably we can close it. Uh, you know, three things which you would want to tell people to keep in mind uh, if you are starting to grow a community right now. Uh, and, and uh, you know, probably three things as product managers also which you should keep in mind. In general, I think they're, they're probably fairly similar. Actually, um, the first is to stay curious. Um, if you if you stop learning, you're dead. It's just a matter of time before you die. Uh, whereas if you stay learning, the market dynamics will change. Your community needs will change. Your needs will change as a as a, as a person. But so long as you stay curious and so long as you keep asking good questions, you will continue to evolve. You'll continue to learn. You'll continue to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second is to is, is to stay credible. And honestly, mm-hmm. the easiest way to stay credible is simply to be honest. And if somebody asks you a question and you've got advice to share, then share it. Yeah. But likewise, if somebody asks you a question and you're out of your depth, admit that and say, I think that's a really interesting question, but I don't know the answer to it. Mm-hmm. However, here's the way that I would go and find the answer if I had that challenge. So, you know, both in terms of serving your community and in terms of building your product. Yeah. If you come across a challenge that you don't understand, be honest about it, admit it and say, here's a challenge. Don't know how to answer that. Mm. Let's do some research. Let's figure out how to answer that question. Yeah. Uh, rather than jumping straight to a solution, you know, you, you, I think it's easy for people to jump straight to a solution and choose the wrong one without actually doing the research. And I think it's fair to say there's an awful lot of challenges, both in communities yeah. and in product, that have already been solved. They might not have been solved well. That's the key thing. So by doing this research and saying, what else has been done in this space before? You can understand how that problem has been solved in the past. And you can look at what customers thought of it when it was solved. Mm. Did they do a good job? Did they do a bad job? Mm. Likewise, when you're building a community, you can say, did somebody use a Discord? Did did, did somebody use Discord or Slack for a community before? Mm. How did it go? Did they stay on Slack for six months and then move to Discord? Did they Mm. stay on Discord for six months and then move to Circle? Because if somebody moved community from platform to platform, the platform mm. then it's, it's a fairly clear indicator that mm. that platform wasn't right there was a mm. reason they chose to move mm. so understand what that reason was why mm. didn't it work because only when you understand why can you make a more informed decision yourself Agreed. Uh, and then i think the the final point which again both for community and for good product management uh, is simply around expectation management it's about explaining to people if you use this product or if you join this community this is what you can expect these are the things that we work on this is the value that we hope to deliver. And if you can if you can maintain that level of clarity, it makes it very, very easy for people to self-select and say, yes, this is absolutely the right community for me to be in, in which case they'll be an active and engaged member. Mm. Or they'll quite happily turn around and say, you know what? This is probably the wrong community for me. I'm going to go elsewhere. Mm. And that's actually brilliant for you as a community organizer because you don't want the wrong people in your community, yeah. right? You'd rather right. they went elsewhere, but they actually got the satisfaction they were looking for. Mm. So, you know, both both in product and in community, being um, upfront about what it is you plan to do and how you plan to deliver value, I think is incredibly mm. important. Mm. Any any interesting communities apart from mind the product, which you have probably you know experienced? Uh, I think the there's a couple of other communities uh, that I spent a fair amount of time in. Um, one of them is a, a London-based community for founders and entrepreneurs mm. uh, called Ice. Uh, I get a lot of value out of that one. And uh, there's another for media um, and publishing founders, um, again, European based, um, which I get a, a fair amount of value from. And that one's run by the Collingwood Advisory Company. Mm. Uh, both of those are groups of 
couple of hundred people or so. Mm. Um, but I, I find the larger communities where you hit uh, sort of, I mean, Web Summit is a good example. The Web Summit community is a couple of hundred thousand people, mm. um, but they've got designers, marketers, engineers, founders, lawyers, VCs, mm. angel investors, so many different types of people that it's actually really hard to find deep dive intelligent advice because it's just mm. a mismatch of everything. Mm. The communities that I value most highly are the ones where they're focused and they can say, we are going to focus on this topic mm. because mm. if people really focus in on that topic, they do a better job of covering it. They'll provide mm. you with higher quality content. Mm. You know, you're focused exclusively on helping people to build things. Mm. We're fo- focused exclusively on product managers learning to be better. Mm. That kind of focus allows you to do a much, much better job. So for me, it's a case of when you're looking for a community, think about what it is you want for that community mm. and then find a community that specifically services that need and not one that's trying to be super broad mm. and cover absolutely everything. Because if they try and do everything, they'll just do a really poor job. Whereas if they try and do one thing, you've got a better chance they're going to do it really well. Mm. <laughs> no, but but that that's a very interesting point because we ourselves are struggling with the whole idea of quality versus quantity. Uh, so how how yeah. fast? So the question is not how fast, and that's something which we also have realized. Uh, is that you know, question is not about how big you can be, but the question is about how relevant is the audience base there, and how, how are they in tune with what you people are offering. So, yeah. so valid, valid, uh, valid uh, point out there. Um, cool, 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 cool. I guess. Uh, are there any other questions that need to be taken? Otherwise, we'll we'll probably close. Anybody who wants to ask uh, a question? Yeah. Hi, James. Pardon to bother you again. Uh, no but, uh, my question was unanswered last time. So my second part of the question was like, how will you, you know, uh, figure out? Uh, how to meet up or cope up with varying opinions about the direction to take products because within your workforce like people will be having a very different personalities ideas and yeah. how to deal with that i think the one of the answers that i love on this one i heard a few years back was that um, you know on the back of a an american dollar bill um it says on the back of there in god we trust Okay. Uh, I think that statement is okay with a qualifier. So to implement that in the product world, I would say, in God we trust, everyone else bring evidence. Mm-hmm. If you tell me that we should be going in a particular direction, I want to see your evidence. Why? Mm-hmm. Why do you think this is the right direction over that direction? Convince me. Show me some data. And that data doesn't necessarily have to be a huge stack of analytics. Uh, what it can be is a huge pile of customer interviews mm-hmm. where you've shown me that you've gone out, you've done the research customers and you've taken a targeted segment of customers you've asked in, you've asked the questions you've asked the right questions about the right topics and you've demonstrated that yeah if we do build this thing or if we go in that particular direction it's going to help us solve a problem either for the customer or for the business mm. so solving a problem for the customer might look like we the, the customer used to take two weeks for this transaction but we can shorten that to one week by building this okay well that's going to build us happier customers brilliant because that's also then going to solve a business problem the chances are if we can build happier customers we're going to reduce our churn mm. so for me it's very much about understanding uh not just the various opinions but what's the evidence behind those opinions how much work have you done to validate this is this just a series of assumptions that you're trying to persuade me of mm. or is there some evidence for why we should listen to this sounds good cool Harish, does that answer your question uh, yeah it does uh, james uh how how's your experience been with our community till now 
I mean, have you been active? Have you followed anything which is? I've enjoyed this session very much. Um, it's the first time I've done one of these uh, okay. with, a, with, a, with a community outside of the, the pure product community. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, Discord is certainly an interesting experience. I've not played with Discord at all, so I'm going to go and poke around this a little bit more and oh, see what else should. I find. You should. You should. Uh, uh, if you want, if you want, if you want a little feedback, I think the uh, the one thing that I could suggest is that with future guests, I don't really know what the audience is here. Uh, yeah. I can see that we have total builders, 1,570 people. But yeah. who are they? What does that look like? Are they? Is it, is it primarily India? There's people in the US, I think. Yeah. I'm guessing you have some in Europe. Product managers, founders, yeah. engineers. I'm guessing it's a will. So if you go to, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to. Yeah, if you go to the "Who Are You" section uh, on uh, in the community, it's below resources. There's a page called. Gotcha. So there, you know, you have a proper breakup of yeah, what. So, I love that. That's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So this is how we have segmented and we know who, who they are right from their domain expertise to which stage of the career they are in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm totally going to steal this. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love this. Seriously, this is, this is really, this is a beautiful example of how to do some user research really yeah. fast and dirty. Yeah, yeah. It's great. That's absolutely genius. Well done. <laughs> thank you thank you we've done quite a so we believe in building very very frugally so we don't over engineer stuff in fact we just launched a tool called the tbc notice board which is basically a compilation of all the you know uh, job listings and co-founder requirements and the introductions of all the people who are there in one excel sheet so you can find everything there and you can share it amongst your network in case people are not a part of the club just share across the excel sheet if somebody finds something relevant they can directly click and come here so gotcha. so that's so again i mean i think we are looking forward to steal a lot of stuff that you people are doing in mind the product right. now because, because trust me i guess it's a it's a it's a it's an education it's an institution in itself what you people have built absolutely oh thank so, you cool sir thanks a lot thanks a lot for uh, doing this thanks a lot for coming to the builders club please be active please uh, you know uh, contribute as much as you can and uh, we'll do the same in in mind the product as well guys all of you who are listening uh, the slack community of the mind of mind the product and the membership plan uh, page for uh, mind the product is there in the watercolor chat so please go please check and in, in case you people are interested please join as well and uh, and you know thanks a lot for joining in thanks a lot james for coming to the builders club and sharing your experiences this has been a wonderful wonderful interaction i guess i myself personally have learned so much in this one hour and i'll probably now bother you a little bit more fantastic well it's been a real pleasure and i'll catch up with you soon yes 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 thanks a lot james thanks a lot for doing this